at the time of a former Buddha, Dipankara Buddha. There was an ascetic named Sumedha. And at one point in his practice, the Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was coming nearby where Sumedha was living. And Sumedha was given a piece of the path, a piece of the roadway upon which the Buddha would walk to prepare and to decorate with flowers and to sweep clean and to make it suitable for the Buddha. And when that Dipankara Buddha came by his spot, the ascetic Sumedha was so taken by the radiance and the obvious uh, nobility and perfection of the Buddha that he made a vow to himself that one day in the future he too would like to become a Buddha and to develop such qualities as he saw before him. And Dipankara Buddha, it said, recognized the sincerity and the integrity of that vow and acknowledged to that ascetic that indeed, in some future life, he would become a Buddha. That ascetic then practiced for innumerable lifetimes in order to perfect the qualities necessary to become a Buddha. And 2,500 years ago, born as the Prince Siddhartha, did in fact become Gotama Buddha. The fact that the ascetic Sumedha, after many lifetimes of practice, became Gotama Buddha was not accidental. It wasn't by a mere uh, casual wish, gee, I'd like to be like that, that it came to be. But rather it was through the integrity and the power of the intention in the ascetic's mind to become a Buddha, to perfect those qualities necessary. Our intentions, like the intentions of the ascetic, are powerful and they carry implications that extend far beyond the moment into the future. Arnold Toynbee, a famous historian, once said, when historians look back at the 20th century, they won't have much interest in things like communism or capitalism. Those will be ripples in the great historical picture. What will really be significant is the impact of Buddhism as it enters the West, because Buddhism has transformed every culture it has entered, and Buddhism has been transformed by its entry into that culture. innumerable lifetimes and 2,500 years later, we feel the effect of a single intention in someone's mind.
the result that we experience, that we have access to, is the result of the lawful unfolding of karma. That inherent in every action, every intentional action, is the potential to produce an effect. How can we understand the story of the ascetic Sumedha? How can we understand the law of karma in order to support our practice here? In order to make sense of what it is we're doing here? To understand our experiences of pleasure and pain and sorrow and happiness and ease and difficulty? How can we make sense of our suffering here? The right view of karma can be a powerful ally in our practice. It can be used to support and sustain right effort with confidence. It can be used to help adjust our attitudes so that we more wisely regard the range of pleasant and unpleasant experiences that we come across. It can offer us an understanding of the nature of the obsessions in our mind, the power of habit, and how to break habits, or how to let go of habits. And it can help us to live an orderly life. Personally, I don't know whether the law of karma is true or false. I can see from my own experience um, a general, generally I can verify the broad outlines that indeed actions do have results. And the more powerful the intention, sometimes the more powerful the result. I can see that. That's pretty obvious. What I can't see and can't confirm is all the minutiae of specific claims about karma and the law of karma, that such and such actions have such and such result. I don't know that. I can't see it. I don't know what actions, former actions, cause me to experience what I now experience. I don't know that. But over the years of my practice in this lifetime, I have seen how I've grown to live as if the law of karma were true, without needing any more proof than that. When I was in Burma practicing, of course I was in the heart of Buddhist practice, not just Buddhist theory, but Buddhist practice living in the monastery that I was in. And the belief or the uh, confirmation that they have that the law of karma is so is just phenomenal. And often Burmese would come to me and acknowledge that in past lives I had been their teacher and that they wanted to reestablish that connection in the present life and support my being a monk in Burma. The first dozen times or so, I thought it was some kind of hype or some kind of 
angle, you know, to get in somehow. I didn't know what they were going to get from it, but... <laughs> After a while, I stopped questioning how they could believe such things and just believed them. At least believed their sincerity and accepted their strong trust and their devotion and their, their faith in me even. Although sometimes that felt like a burden. Um, and I allowed their confidence and their trust, their belief or verification of karma, to support, to, to inspire my own practice and to support me when times got rough, when times got difficult. And so I merely used their support to really practice, to do my own practice diligently and with as much integrity as I could. I still don't know whether it's true or not, but it was helpful in my practice. So what is the law of karma anyway? Basically, or essentially, the law of karma states that all volition, all volitional thoughts, speech, and actions contain the potential to produce effects. That means that actions rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion produce somewhere in the maybe near future, sometimes in the far future, pleasant results that we experience as pleasantness in the body, pleasantness in the mind. It means that actions rooted in Generous. Wait a minute. <laughs> Back up. Back up. <laughs> Don't I wish? <laughs> Somebody wrote the non notes here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you know what I meant. <laughs> Actions rooted in generosity, understanding, love, connection with others, produce pleasant results somewhere in the immediate or far future. Actions rooted in uh, greed, hatred, and delusion, that divisive, um, divisive states of mind feeling disconnected and separated in competition with, will produce unpleasant physical and mental results in the immediate or the far future. It means that powerful intentions produce powerful results. Insignificant intentions produce insignificant results. Every action, every karmic action, conditions many results. Every result has many causal uh, karmic acts. Karma operates throughout our entire life. All that we experience, the pleasantness and unpleasantness of this life, is the result or the karmic conditioned by actions in the past. The Buddha was wise enough to say, don't try to figure it out. 
it'll drive you crazy. But we can get a sense of it and when we look in our own practice. If we look at the present situation, where we find ourselves or how we find ourselves right now, being born a human, the law of karma says that being born a human is the result of innumerable acts of generosity, morality, and mental development. The primary cause for being born a human is good, wholesome actions in the past. A secondary cause is parents. This is a different understanding than we have in the West. The law of karma says that the human realm is the most beneficial for practicing the Dharma because we do experience a fair amount of pleasantness and unpleasantness. We can use this life to increase our understanding, to develop more good karma, so to speak, to practice generosity, morality, and mental development. How? To the degree that we respond to the conditions we find ourselves living here with generosity, love, and understanding, then we develop or we mold our human character towards that which is noble, that which is desirable, towards that which the ascetic Sumedha pointed his life. We can see that we have choice. We have innumerable choices to make, decisions to make in our life. We mold our character by our choices. It's not fixed. It's fluid. It's unformed. It's the dough of uh, creative play. But we need to understand what it is we're doing with this unformed potential within us. The body, of course, it has its own hardwiring. It is born, it's going to grow old, it's going to get sick, it's going to die. That is a given. The mind, on the other hand, has the potential to grow, to mature, to develop, but it's not a given. It's our choice in each and every moment of life how to respond to the given situation, the given conditions. Karmically, we can understand that those who experience a short life, it is said it is because of having been violent or killed other beings in the past. Those who have an ugly demeanor or appearance, it is said is because of their anger in their past. Those who are beautiful, 
and attractive, it's said it's because they were loving and kind in the past. Those who are poor and without much material goods, it is said it's because of their being attached and stingy in the past, while those who are wealthy and live with a sense of abundance, it is said it's because they were generous in the past. We may or may not be able to understand how or why this is, but because of the fact of ever-present change, results are not inflexibly determined and we have the opportunity to change in every moment. We can see, even superficially in our own experience, what happens when we get angry. You know, we tighten up, we get hot, we get tense, we scowl, we sweat. We don't feel good, we don't look good, we don't act good. And if we're habitually angry, it gets locked in. You know, we walk around with a permanent scowl. It happens. We can see it. When we're generous, what does that mean? It doesn't necessarily mean by Wall Street standards we have a lot of money. Rather, it means that our relationship to what we have is that we have enough. In fact, we have an overabundance, and we have enough to share with others. No matter how little we have, actually. If we live with a sense of, it's more than enough, then we have a feeling of, and a capability of being generous, of sharing, living with a sense of abundance. It's not how much we have, whether it's things, or knowledge, or friends. It's how we relate to what we do have that determines whether we are generous or not. But we can see that at any moment, any urge can arise. Upandita used to remind me that any thought can appear at any time in any mind. And so we have to know that we're going to see a lot of potential, a lot of possibilities, a lot of choices. One of the great supports for practice, maybe one of the real benefits of living in a monastery as a monk or nun, is that you don't have to make any choices. Everything, nearly everything, is decided for you. When to practice, when to eat, how to eat, where to eat, who to eat with, how much to eat, when to sleep, how much to sleep, how to sleep, what to wear, when to wear, how to wear. Everything is decided by the rules. You know, all you have to do is watch the mind. Great support for practice. Tremendous support, because you don't have to make decisions. But by learning how to carefully make decisions, wise decisions, we can learn to develop our mind. 
to, to act on those good and noble intentions that arise and to restrain ourselves, to eliminate, to um, not act on those less than desirable impulses that arise. Practice shows us which impulses are good and which impulses are bad because we can see in our own experience what leads to happiness and what doesn't. We can't depend on an external standard. Not Hollywood, nor Washington, D.C., nor Wall Street, or whoever else is going to know what makes you happy. What really leads to your deep inner peace and contentment? Only you can know that for yourself. Which acts, which impulses to act on for happiness? But no doubt, as you've looked at your own mind these weeks, months, you've seen how difficult it is to actually catch your own intentions, your own motivations. And when you do see your own intentions and motivations, to see how confusing and conflicting they can be. How many times we act out of a sense of fear or loss or, or pain, sometimes mixed with a little bit of benevolence and caring, and sometimes not. But in any sense, in either case, we create a sense of who we are by our choice on how to act. There are two competing or conflicting or kind of corrupted views of karma that need to be mentioned. We sometimes fall into them in practice and it's helpful to identify them so that we can recognize them when we're caught in them. And one is believing that life is a given. It's already predetermined and we just got to live it out. And the second is that nothing is given, everything's a chance. Considering this life is determined, when we're experiencing agreeable determinism, it confidently proclaims it's all going to unfold as it's meant to. All I have to do is let it happen. The benefit of that belief is, of course, that we begin to accept the way things are. We have a little patience, we have a little trust. But the limit is that we might not make any effort to do anything about it. That we might blindly and complacently trust in the natural unfolding of things, which, as we've seen, can go in either direction. It's up to us to guide, to direct the unfolding. Disagreeable determinism laments the fact that nothing I do seems to make any difference. And we all fall into this at times in our practice. I don't know if there's any benefit to that understanding or to that um, idea or to that belief. But it certainly is a disempowering um, belief to have in practice. And it leads to a sense of resignation. Nothing I do matters. 
and why make the effort? When we fall into either of these agreeable or disagreeable views of determinism, our practice is not going to be supported well. The second wrong view is that of chance, believing that and acting as if things are just happening by chance, that there's no real cause for things, that we didn't really make it happen, or we didn't do anything to deserve this falling victim, so to speak. Agreeable chance boasts, I can make good use of anything that happens. All experience is my teacher from which I know I'll benefit. It's true, all of our experience can be a teacher. That's the positive side. We can have a lot of confidence, a lot of energy, and even some understanding of how to see what's offered by life. The limitation is that it can also lead to a very Pollyanna-ish attitude where everything's wonderful even dukkha. And we can get complacent in just letting things be bad. Another form of chance asserts that I have to get and do for myself, even if it's at the expense of others. Because, you know, it's the law of the jungle out there and might makes right. And sometimes we have that attitude. Even in practice, we can fall prey to believing that might makes right. Both these determinists, determination and, and chance are wrong views, wrong understanding of the way things are unfolding. But the right view of karma includes both. In fact, conditions that we now experience are determined or are conditioned by the past. And it is our opportunity, it's our chance to make something of it, to live skillfully in relation to it. With this understanding, we don't believe or we don't fall prey to believing that life is arbitrary, meaningless, and fixed but rather that we have a choice, that things are unfolding according to some lawful nature. It's our personal responsibility to shape the way things unfold. With this right understanding of karma, we can begin to make sense of our suffering and feel supported in our practice, where we learn and need to forbear that which is unpleasant, need to learn to restrain or renounce or let go of that which is pleasant, and to look carefully at everything that is presented to us in this life. When we understand the law of karma, it makes sense to work for or to be motivated by the intention or the wish to relieve the suffering of all beings, including our own, and for realizing the truth of freedom.
That's the general picture of karma. If we want a closer look at just how karma works, how karma unfolds, we can look to the Buddha's teaching of dependent origination. Here, in the teaching of dependent origination, life, or the wheel of life, all of samsara, is seen as the lawful unfolding of karma, of cause and effect. Whatever plane of existence one happens to find themselves on. And in the Buddhist cosmology, there are 31 planes of existence. We can understand them as being somewhere else, or we can understand them as being within our own experience here. Hell realms of uh, great difficulty, pain and suffering. Heavenly realms of great joy, bliss, and very, very subtle understandings of the nature of mind. Experiencing absorptions in loving kindness, compassion, even immaterial experiences where the mind is absorbed in infinite space or consciousness or even nothing. All these are within the realm of samsara, planes of existence, which we can find ourselves living here as a human being. But in this understanding of the wheel of life, the teaching is that throughout the many existences, there is an individual character to each stream of consciousness. So that the ascetic samadha, that stream of consciousness through transformation did indeed result in Gotama Buddha. There was a stream, a continuous stream, from one to the other, which unfolded due to the lawful cause and effect of karma, without there being an individual within that flow, making that process happen, but merely cause and effect unfolding from one existence to the next. The essential elements of the teachings of dependent origination are that karmic acts of the past condition our present experience. How we relate to the present experience conditions future existence. This wheel of existences goes on unbroken, endlessly, until and unless one is freed by liberating insight. One of my favorite musical groups puts it this way. The wheel is turning and you can't slow it down. You can't let go and you can't hold on. You can't go back and you can't stand still. If the thunder don't get you, then the lightning will. This circle, this cycle of endless existence, samsara, wanders on.
What in the past, what conditions in the past cause this present life? The Buddha looked into his own life and discovered when he traced back the causal links for his present existence, that the root cause was ignorance. Ignorance and the karmic actions to become that which he was. In the past, when living without mindful awareness, we believe that it is possible to create a stable, happy, secure, satisfying, fulfilling existence. We imagine that's possible. And so we pursue that creation. We try to construct that in our minds and in our life. But this imagination denies or ignores the three characteristics which we have seen here in practice. That all things are impermanent, that experience is incapable of providing a stable satisfaction, and that there is no self-entity to which this is happening. What we fail to see in that construction, in that imagination, is that every sense of self that appears is due to conditions. Physical conditions, mental conditions, external conditions come together and creates a sense of I me. And we like it or we dislike it. But when those conditions change, that sense of I changes, disappears, ceases to exist. When we fail to see that, I am a construction of conditions, then we will believe that if I get what I want, then I'll be happy. In pursuit of what we want, we act, we speak, we do, we move, we, we try to create it, we try to get it, we try to find it, we try to make it happen. And in that, in all of those actions, there is the, is the intention to create a sense of I, a self. And that potential I is planted in the stream of consciousness. And when conditions come together, that I will manifest in an experience. I'm a yogi. I'm here doing this retreat. We have imagined this innumerable times. Now it's coming true. Are we happy? 
Didn't we have that belief that if I could just do that three-month retreat, then I'd be happy? Somewhere, it's, it's in there. And we have pursued it, and we have got it, and here it is. What we also see as we sit here is how many other potential eyes there are waiting to uh, manifest. All of those thoughts, all of those desires, all of those plans, all of those things that we want to do and get and become, they're all potential just waiting. In the mind, they're relatively benign. But when we start speaking them and acting them, they become very real, very solid. And that sense of who I am creating and constructing becomes very difficult to let go of. Not only because of our attachment to that sense of who I am or want to become, but because other people then see and react and give reflection back and feedback to you that very same sense of self that you're putting out. But when conditions change, that sense of I, whatever sense of self we have identified with, changes with it. In the traditional understanding of dependent origination, it is said that at the time of death, when the self dies or when I die, there appears in the mind one of three things. A vision of some karmic act that we have performed, a sign of that karma or some karmic act that we have performed, meaning something that we've done. And if, you, if the sign of uh, meditating came, you might see the Buddha Rupa or your Zafu or the place where you used to sit, a symbol, really, of that karmic act. Or if not the karma itself or the sign of that karmic act, then a sign of where you're going, where your next future existence will be. And any one of these images can, can manifest in the mind. Now we see these images manifesting in the mind all the time. Memories, plans, and symbols of things that we've done or things that we want to do. We don't have to wait till death of this body to see that. It's happening in every moment. And what do we do with them? Traditionally, it's said at the time of death, the mind, the desire to live is so great that it will grab onto one of those images and it will create a new life. It will create a new existence. Or let's say that the moment that you grab onto that image will condition the next moment. We see it here. As soon as we grab onto a memory or a thought or a plan, we grab onto a plan, we get identified with it, and then we go act it out. It just happens that the grabbing on of one image happens as the last moment of this life the acting out of that, or the becoming of that, is the first act of the next life. 
What we're seeing here is a moment-to-moment birth and death of I. And the same process keeps happening up until the moment of this body's death and continues with the beginning of the next moment in another place. They say, we can see it. We can get a pretty good sense that that's actually what's happening in the mind. One moment conditions the next. No body passes from one life to the next. Even here, our body doesn't stay the same from one instant to the next. It's continually fluxing. Every seven years, they say, all of the cells of the body are replaced. If we could look carefully and closely, we'd see how many of them are replaced in the snap of a finger. It's a different body in every moment. We don't have to wait till next lifetime. It's a different mind in every moment, conditioned by the past. We don't have to wait till next lifetime. We can see it here. We can understand this as the law of karma unfolding. So as the past karmic acts unfold their result in our current present, how we relate to the present situation determines or conditions our future existence or our future sense of who we are, who who we will become. When we pursue this sense of self or this sense of I, we create fresh karma, fresh actions. With the birth of any sense of self, with the creation of any I, with identifying with any sense of who we are, there is the inevitable termination of it. When conditions change, that sense of self will dissolve. And that's painful. That's a loss that we grieve, that we fear, maybe that we want, if it's an unpleasant or an undesirable sense of self. But it's this termination of, or this ending of, who we think we are that is so painful to discover in practice, so difficult to let go of. It is said, traditionally, at the moment of birth in a new existence, that one of four karmas will appear. If one has performed any very serious karma, a karma that requires great intention, great energy, great determination, such as killing uh, parents or very, very strongly, uh, strong actions. Or if, on the positive side, if one has developed 
the ability to enter absorptions, the jhanas, whether it's metta jhana or the immaterial jhanas. It takes a tremendous amount of determination, tremendous amount of energy and clarity to do these things. It is said that due to the power of the intention in the mind, that that act will be the determinant for one's next life, next existence. We can get a sense of that here in practice. When we sit down, when we begin a retreat, that which comes up first and foremost and most persistently is that which has been most in the foreground of our life, that which we've done, which we've been most intensely involved in, that which has been most important to us. It's that what we have to deal with first. But if that is seen through or let go of, or even if there isn't any of that in our life, then that which we do or have done habitually will appear to determine or to set the stage for the next life. And we can see this in practice too. What comes up most often in our practice is that which we have done habitually. We endlessly review our actions, our behavior, our thoughts, our plans of what we have done a lot in our life. It's because it's just so, the momentum in the mind to do that action is so strong that it will be there. It'll be recalled. If we can see through that, if we can um, begin to not be obsessed with our habits, then the act that we're doing at that time can be the act which conditions our next life, our next existence. We can see this in practice. We're just sitting here minding our own business. And somebody does something that attracts our attention. You know, they stomp in in the middle of a sitting, for example. Immediately, that act conditions our next sense of self, that judgmental self that says, they shouldn't be doing that. In spite of our habit of mindfulness up to that point, that act was so strong in the present moment, it conditioned our next experience of ourself. What we also see as we begin to open to the full range of stuff in our mind is that anything we have ever done, no matter how insignificant, whether it's this lifetime or another lifetime, can come to the mind and we can obsess on it. I mean, we've all seen this, how some insignificant thing from some years back that we can't remember or couldn't remember comes into the mind and it just hangs in there and we can't get it out. Then it conditions our next sense of ourself. That next moment's experience of, you know, I like it, I don't like it, why is this happening to me or whatever. When I was in Burma, I think I might have told this story to some of you. When I was in Burma, there was, um, uh, in the monasteries there, a lot of the uh, elderly people, 
men and women who have no family and have retired or whatever, they go to live in the monastery and they just do some a little bit of work sweeping and cleaning and helping with the food preparation and then they just sit and do their practice for the rest of the day. And one of these women uh, living in, in the monastery I was in in Burma um, was doing her practice, her meditation one day in one of the women's meditation hall and she died. She was just sitting there and she died. And her family, when they, when her children or whoever came, were told and came to get the body, they were so happy that she died while she was meditating, believing that that last act of trying to be mindful would be the determinant condition for her next life. There was also a monk there who came to the monastery a couple times, and once I saw him and was speaking with him. He was a very friendly, um, very likable monk, and a lot of the other monks enjoyed enjoyed it when he came to the monastery. And so they introduced me and I spoke to them briefly. And he had come to Rangoon because he wasn't feeling well. He went to the doctors. And he was there for a week or so, went back to his monastery in some other part of Burma. And I heard later that uh, after he returned to his monastery, he was giving a Dharma talk one night and died. And it was considered to be maybe the best uh, conditions for dying to be giving or listening or practicing the Dhamma as a really powerful last act to condition one's next life, one's next existence. But it's hard to let go of all that we want to become, all that we want to do, and all that we think we are. It's painful to let go. It's hard to die. To let go of that sense of me, of I, of self. And instead of allowing ourselves to feel that loss, that dissolution of self, we create a new one immediately and get excited about that, instead of just allowing ourselves to feel that sense of I as it dissolves. Galway Cannell, in his latest book of poetry, writes a poem of, called Paradise Elsewhere. And he ends the poem by saying, yet it has happened to many others, and to you too, Galway, when illness or unhappiness or imagining the future wears an empty place inside us, the idea of paradise elsewhere quickly fills it. When we feel that emptiness inside us, we also quickly fill it with the idea of paradise elsewhere, another sense of self better than this one. we can see that this fleeting sense of self, this fleeting sense of who I am, is happening on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Conditions come together, we have a sense of ourself, those conditions change, that sense of self dissolves. 
when we imagine what we can become next and pursue it, the cycle continues endlessly. When we're able to feel the loss, see that the self is a product of conditions, dependent only on conditions, then we can discover that peace beyond conditions. Given that we've accumulated an infinite amount of karma in the past that we can't do anything about, we can only deal with the present moment. We can only acknowledge the past's effects in the present, those pleasant and unpleasant experiences in our mind, in our body, that we grasp or avoid. And when we pay attention, when we see conditions for what they are, fleeting conditions due to the past, we don't need to create a sense of self around them. We don't have to turn from or attach to them. There was a period of time in my practice in Burma after I'd been there a couple of years, I guess, <clears throat> when there came a point where, you know, the first couple of years, it was like a very thorough personal history review. And there were endless scenarios that played out in my mind. If only, you know, X, Y, Z. If only I'd said this, done this, or they'd said this, or they'd done this, dot, 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 happily ever after. Infinite number of scenarios appear in the mind, and if I was to act on them, they would just lead on to more. But if you see them, you just let them go. But after doing that history review, and then seeing that all that I was expecting from practice wasn't going to bring me anything, whether I was waiting for that kind word from Upandita or that good meal that they served every couple of weeks at the monastery or the letter from home or another monk that was uh, that come to the monastery or the other monk that left the monastery. There wasn't going to be any other sense of self created. It just wasn't going to happen. That conditions were merely playing themselves out. And there wasn't any constellation of conditions that was ever going to make it okay. That was ever going to create a sense of me that was okay. When you see that, when you really see that there aren't any conditions necessary, for happiness, for peace. Then you can let the sense of self go. You can see through that constructed sense of self that's dependent on conditions. That's our task here, to see clearly the nature of conditions and how they create a sense of self. 
let that sense of self die and live with the changing conditions. To discover that freedom that is beyond conditions and to be all that you're able to be. To be that full blossom to let all the petals of your being unfold. So maybe we should sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.